So today what we have here in these two uh, chapters, and actually spilling over into the very first verse of chapter 8, is the first panoramic view, the first panoramic view coming from the throne of God to all of us down here on earth. We find the seven seals and what they represent. We find the seals grouped in two. The first four grouped together and the last three grouped together. And between the sixth and the seventh uh, of those seals, we find that God or Jesus Christ takes a little bit of a break to tell us who those people are that would be faithful to him to, to, him to the very end. I struggled a lot as to whether or not I sh we should, um, I should preach on these two chapters today because there's just so much to cover. I mean, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to, instead of stepping in or moving in and, and getting bogged down in the, in the minutia and the details of these two chapters, we're, gonna, we're going to stay, we're going to take a step back and, um, and try to take a more panoramic view of what is going on here. Of course, the, um, in order to understand this passage, we need to go back once again and do a little bit of a review on what we saw in Revelation chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 5. There we find something that, is, uh, uh, that we don't normally see here on earth, um, and that is to say from our vantage uh, point here as human beings here, here on earth, we don't normally see the whole universe worshiping God. And yet, when uh, Jesus Christ invites uh, John to the throne room of God, he lets him see what the, the whole universe is doing, unbeknownst to all of us here on earth in this fallen world. What we find is that, what we find is a, a, is a concentric circle around God's throne, and what we find is that the universe, the universe, has a center, and that center is the throne room of God, and from that center emanates all the goodness and all the love of God in making sure that His entire universe runs in accordance to His will. And what we see as well is that in those concentric circles, we see that every single creature in the universe finds their meaning as they worship God, because that's what God, you know, intended everything uh, to be, to uh, in other words, the meaning of life, it can be found in no other than the worship of God incessantly, day and night. And what we find in, in Revelation chapter 5 adds to what we find in Revelation chapter 4. What we find in Revelation chapter 5 is that the destiny of you and me has been given to Jesus Christ. And by virtue of his death and resurrection and his enthronement up in heaven, the Father, our Heavenly Father, has given him the opportunity or the privilege or the honor or the authority of not only unfolding before our very eyes our own destiny, but also enforcing that in accordance to the will of God. And now we find in, in chapter 6 and 7 and the first verse of chapter 8 how Jesus Christ begins to unfold our future before us. And it's a panoramic, it's a cosmic sweep that takes us from the time of Jesus Christ's enthronement and even really be before that. If we are to include all of those Old Testament 
believers that believe by faith in the provisions of God for their, for their redemption and their restoration, believing by faith, even if they, 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 they did not know who Jesus Christ was, they knew about him in many other ways. If we include them, then this is a cosmic sweep that really spans the entirety of the whole human history. That's what the seals provide us. But, but right now, what it does is that it takes us from the time primarily when Jesus Christ is enthroned up in heaven and how Jesus Christ takes his victory on the cross, uh, his victory on the cross and, and his coronation as the one that unfolds our, uh, our, um, our destiny as God's only answer to human depravity. And he takes that and he rides and he rides as the first horse in these seven seals. And asking two things of everyone here on earth. First of all, he asks all believers to, to ride with him, so to speak. To, to the very end, to be faithful to him to the very end, come what may. And to follow his lead as the one who showed, as the, as the only one that showed the way back into the heart of God. Faithfulness, uncompromising faithfulness to him, regardless of whatever the cost Maybe. How do we know? You know the, the question has been given. Uh, uh, has been given. How how do we know that the first uh, the first seal, the first rider uh, in these you know four rider uh, tandem is Jesus Christ? Well, we know it for several things. First of all, um, we know it by the color of, of of his clothing, and the color white is always representative in the entire book of Revelation of those that are faithful to God. And also, we find that he wears his crown, the crown that only those that are overcomers in God wear, get to wear. It's, it's, the, um, it's, the, crown called, it's the, the crown of victory or the laurel leaf crown that is given to all, that, to all the victors of old. And we find that only Jesus Christ and all his believers, all his faithful believers, are the ones that get to wear this crown. But last of all, when we go all the way down to Revelation chapter 19, in verse 11, we find there another white rider, and uh, rider on a white horse, and it is specifically identified as Jesus Christ himself at the end of this whole uh, saga of, of redemption history. In verse 11, it says very specifically, and I want you to note this verse uh, uh, well. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is, careful, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven wearing fine linen. That would be the redeemed. Wearing fine linen. White and pure we're following him on white horses. So there you have it. In the first seal, as, as, uh, as Jesus Christ in heaven breaks the first seal, something happens here on earth, and, and, and we see this white horse galloping, and, and, and the rider on the white horse holding a bow and arrow, and he's going to conquer with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's now victorious, and he's asking all the believers to ride with him, 
to be faithful to the very end and urging as well the whole world, the whole world, not to take him lightly. And then we go into the, the next three uh, of these seals, which one famous theologian has described really as God's, the beginnings of God's horror show. And really, I mean, uh, when you look at it, you can see it's really, you know, what's described there is really, really horrific. You know I, mean? I mean, the imagery is, is surreal. Uh, even maybe, you know, the post-apocalyptic movies that we see these days probably even pale in comparison with what we see here and the, and the gory description of what these writers do. What we see here, essentially, is Jesus warning us of what the rejection of God and of the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ would unleash upon the whole world. What, what happens when God is rejected and Jesus Christ and the values that they, they, they hold dear and the values of their kingdom, love, peace, joy, long-suffering, and all of those things are rejected wholesale by people across the world. We find, we find this, uh, the painful consequences described in these three next um, riders, in these uh, horse riders, in these, in these seals. In seal number two, number three, and number four. And we find the painful consequences of this rejection on two very broad levels. We find it on the spiritual level, and we also find it on the temporal, or that is, in the societal level. That is to say that whenever we reject God and God's only provision for the redemption and for the restoration of, of humanity, the restoration of society, then all of these things, all of these painful and a lot of them natural consequences will be unleashed upon humanity. What happens when God withdraws from the heart of individuals? And what happens when God withdraws from the land is what is given us in horrific detail in seals number two, three, and four. In the second rider, we find the rider of the red horse. We find the, the loss of spiritual peace and the havoc that this brings to society to families, to communities, and to the world at large. And in the, in the third horse, which is basically the, uh, the dark horse, the black horse, we find spiritual starvation and the havoc that this can cause to individuals and the havoc that this can cause to society at large. And then to the last horse, to the, um, to the pale green horse. And by the way, this horse is basically... Um, you know, the color of this horse tells us, by the way, um, that this horse is not alive. Uh, this is a corpse of a horse. In other words, this is a horse that is running, but it's already dead. It's a very graphic, a surreal, surreal um, imagery, which represents the spiritual death and, and the havoc that this can bring to society, to individuals and society at large. And I know that as Adventists, we've studied these time and again, and sometimes we, or a lot of times, we see these as, 
as sequential events and one-off events that happen in the history of humanity leading up to uh, the very end of time. But I think that that is not the case here. This is not a sequential one-off event. As much as, um, as, much as these, are, these, these things are, are cyclical events, all right, that happen in various degrees, in various ways, as people reject in varying, de varying degrees God's truths and God's offer of redemption in Jesus Christ. They are primarily natural consequences, yes, but they are compounded by demonic forces filling the vacuum created by the absence of God in people's hearts and in society. What happens when communities, societies, and nations are overrun by these conditions? What happens is that you have varying degrees of pain and varying degrees of suffering and tribulations that happen again, time and time again, throughout the history of humanity. This is what Jesus Christ wants us to see as the consequences, both natural and demonic, as you see, I, you know, I try to imagine, you know, those horses as the horses as the natural part, the natural consequences, and those the riders are the demonic part of the consequences of rejection, re rejecting God. I remember reading a book some time ago, in which this, this infamous author, an infamous person, if I mention his name, you'd recognize him in a, in a heartbeat, when he said, "We have no quarrels." with God. All we want is for God to leave us alone. And you know, be careful what you wish for. Because when God withdraws by our own choices, if we force God to withdraw from our lives, what we will see, as Jesus Christ tells us, is what we see in these horses, minus the first horse, Jesus Christ. What we see is a deepening amount of depravity, of, of, of vacuum in our lives, which will cause us pain and also will, will cause us to inflict pain on others around us. It's a horrific show indeed that Jesus Christ gives us. But it is a necessary thing for us to truly get a handle on how horrific life would be if we got our wish, or the wish of the worst among us, for God to leave us alone. One author describes hell as simply the absence, the complete absence of God. And scripture tells us that God is light, and when light is taken out from a certain place and darkness reigns, what happens is what is described in the first or in the second, the third, and the fourth seal. But you know, God is a good God, and He allows everyone the opportunity to make their own choices. But He would want us to understand, however, 
that to choose not to have God in our lives is to really to choose a life that would eventually end up in absolutely or in absolute destruction of ourselves. Because it is not really the case whereby we could say, oh, you know, God, please just leave me, just stay over there, and I'll stay in this one corner. I won't bother anybody. Least of all, I won't bother you. Just let me leave, live my life the way I want to live my life, apart from you. But what we do not know is there is no such life. And that the way God has created this universe is such that when God is absent in anything, everything crumbles into nothingness. And that is what God wants us to see as Jesus Christ starts to peel or to break the seals and starts to unravel our future and starts to enforce our future in the way that God wishes it to unfold. If we ride with Jesus Christ, if we are faithful to Him, then He will give us this life, this full life, this good life. And unfortunately, apart from that, there truly is not going to be any life at all. Somebody once said that if you are this, you know, if, 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 you, are, if you are this person and you are the solid person, and you say, all right, well, I want to live my life apart from God. And I just want to be left for eternity. Leave me alone. And that's you right there. And God is over here. And eventually what will happen to that person, to that solid object, is that that object will cease to exist altogether. Why? Because the life forces of God that sustains and maintains that, that object will be completely withdrawn. That object will wilt, that object will die, and that object will cease to, to exist for eternity and beyond, if there is such a time and a place. But God still uses, however, these painful consequences that we put upon ourselves when we become depraved and different levels of depravity. He still uses pain, this kind of sinful pain, created by these horrific conditions to accomplish his purposes. And that's what we find in the next three, in the next two um, seals, in seals number five and in seals number six. God uses pain in three very basic ways. First, he uses pain to confirm people to their own choices. That is to say, if you truly wish God to disappear from your life, sooner or later, God will stop pursuing you and say, I will confirm you to your choice. There is now no saving you because you have totally refused all of my advances towards you to try to save you from yourself. And so he uses pain to confirm people to their own choices. Second, he uses pain to wake people up, you, you and I, for another chance at redemption. Perhaps a second chance or a third chance or whatever, however many chances we've had so far. And third, he uses pain to purify people and take all the dross off of us. We find this happening in the, 
in the text in the next two seals, seals number five and seal number six. And the interlude that happens, you know, in, in, in um, Revelation chapter seven. In, um, in seal number, number five, we find this, um, we find the saints crying, as it were, the martyred saints crying, as it were, for justice in their suffering. Um, and this sobering cry, Lord, how much longer are we going to, you know, are, are you going to, uh, uh, be, before we, you start judging the world and all of those that have inflicted pain on us? And Jesus' answer is very quick, and it's very sobering indeed. And he says, look, listen, the number of you have not been completed yet. That's part of the answer that he gives. But then he actually says, he actually ends up saying that everyone who wishes to become truly, uh, who, who are faithful to, to, to Jesus Christ and, and to, to God the Father, must undergo this, must go through this, this painful experience in their, in, in their life. And it's the same thing as Jesus Christ saying uh, in the Gospels when he said to his disciples, pick up your cross and carry, carry your cross and follow me. That is to say that everyone goes through this, um, the, puri the purification of, of pain and suffering and, and, and tragedies, if, if you please, in our lives. Nobody is exempt from it, least of all ourselves. And Jesus says that every believer must carry his or her own cross all the way to the very end. Pain must work its way through every believer down to the last person. And if pain means death by martyrdom, well, Jesus Christ set the bar for that. And the promise is not so much that we would escape these pain and these suffering as much as that God promises that he will save you through all of it. And he will make sure that you will be sealed perfect in the eyes of God, fully human once again, as God intended humans originally to be. And then we find the polar opposite as, as, as we go to seal number six, the polar opposite in the rebellious, those that would constantly and end up refusing the, the offers of God, of grace, of redemption, of restoration. They too suffer pain and suffering. But the difference between what pain does to them and what pain does to the righteous are polar opposites. Because pain, whereas pain um, purifies the people of God, pain now destroys those that are rebellious. They too suffer pain, but it will destroy them so much so that their final pain will be to behold the coming of the one whom they rejected over and over and over again. So there you have it, the first three, oh, sorry, the first six seals in a very cursory and kind of in a panoramic view. But before Jesus ends it with, you know, the, the, the last seal, with the consummation of all things and the renewal of all things happening in the, in, in, the, in the last seal. 
he takes a break and he looks, he zeroes in on those individuals, on those um, Jesus showcases his faithful who have all gone through or are going through the pains and the hardships and the tribulations of life in their day, past, present, and future. And he presents them to us in two stages of their life. In the first part of that chapter, in chapter 7, he presents them to, uh, to us as a marvelous army arrayed for battle, as it were. This is a military metaphor that we have in Revelation chapter 7. In the Old Testament times, a thousand was the battle group. Uh, you know, that was the practice of the Israelite army and David kind of, Saul and David uh, uh, were known to divide their armies into uh, groups, uh, divisions of thousands. And so what we have here basically is a thousand, which is one battle group, multiplied by 12 for each tribe. And then you have 12 tribes, which is basically representative of the entire length and breadth of all the faithful past, present, and future. This number is not a literal number that was never intended to be a literal number. And there are clues that we could find within this, you know, these verses in chapter 7 that would lead us to conclude that. One of them is that, as you, if you will notice, you will notice that the, um, the names of the tribes are not exactly correct. You'll find, for example, that the tribe of Dan is completely missing. And you will find as well that the tribe of Ephraim has been renamed as the tribe of Joseph. No, this is not a literal number, nor is this representing only the Jews by birth. This is representative of all of God's faithful that are fighting despite their, the pain and the suffering and the tribulations they go through in their lives, in their own context, as we find ourselves in our own context of suffering here now, as we bear the consequences of this lockdown with COVID-19, people losing their jobs or their jobs being reduced to size, and therefore their income severely, drastically reduced. And what about those people that die from this COVID-19 epidemic. Each generation, each society, each epoch, whatever it is, each individual will have his or her own context of suffering. It doesn't matter. It's immaterial. The message that rings across is we might fight, we must fight our way through it with Jesus Christ at the head of his army, and be faithful, be faithful, even as pain takes our life and may cause our own death. The promise is twofold. The promise is that God will use whatever pain you go through in your life, however minute or however heavy it might be, doesn't matter. God will use your sufferings, your pain, to make sure that all the dross gets taken out of your soul. And if it should cost you your life here, he promises 
to bring you back to life again. And if your suffering is being caused by someone, evil person or evil entities or evil water system, the promise is that he too will judge those individuals. They will receive just, you will receive justice for the pain that have been caused you. So we have in chapter 7 a two-part rendition, a two-part um, uh, presentation of those that are, that are um, conquering in Jesus Christ throughout the ages. He first presents them as an army marching in battle in perfect array, 12,000 from each tribe, not, again, not literal, it's from every nation, tribe, and people. And then by the time we get to verse 9, he presents them as a multitude that have already reached heaven. And there, before the throne, they join their representatives. Remember the 24 elders that represent them, that represent all of us in heaven? When we go back to Revelation chapter 4, we find that all of those individuals, all of those creatures, created beings that God Well, beings that God has created, they're all worshiping Him. But you don't find in Revelation chapter 4, you don't find this multitude. You find this multitude at the very end when, when, when you know, Jesus Christ has already peeled off all the seals and He's already um, accomplished the unfolding and the enforcing of our destiny. The assurance for us is this, that we will find ourselves before the throne room of God, fully restored, and fully redeemed. Not a single person that calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be lost. You will be there with me and with all of those people, past, present, and future, that hope in the name of Jesus Christ. And we will join the rest of the universe in worshiping God ceaselessly throughout eternity. The saga of the seven seals and the unfolding of our destiny ends with this kind of cryptic, um, almost you know, indecipherable uh, verse. What does verse chapter 8, verse 1 mean? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I can tell you that the tendency among many of us Adventists is to you know, parse this and and say, okay, well, if one, one day equals one year, okay, so half an hour, how, many, uh, how long would that be? No, 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 that's not the point. That's not the point here. Let's, let's not parse this in this way and lose the big picture. What this is communicating to us is this. What we have in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 is the whole world, is the whole world or the whole universe minus humanity praising God and Jesus Christ conquering at the cross and anticipating His final victory. And then they get to watch everything unfold as Jesus Christ peels one seal after another and reveals to the onlooking universe, you know, the, the righteousness and the justice of God's cause and, and, and how He goes about accomplishing His purposes there, there are, astounded there, they are overwhelmed, they're awestruck. 
But by the time we reach the final unfolding of his plan, they have nothing left to say. They are reduced to the silence of awe. The whole universe will be reduced to this momentary, to this momentary silence of awe as they could not, could not have imagined, even in their wildest dreams, how Jesus Christ would accomplish your redemption, my redemption, our restoration as his people. Who could have imagined that it would go this the way Jesus Christ says it will go? But it's been given to us here, at least in, you know, in, in pictures, how it will unfold. And why would Jesus Christ do that? To tell you that the one that, that, that wishes your allegiance knows exactly what he's doing and is capable of carrying out what he says he will carry out. And when he tells you and me to persevere despite all the difficulties in our lives, big and small, he knows what he's saying. He's been there himself. And he wants you to follow in his footsteps. Not to recreate his life. There's only one life that bought all the other lives. All he wants us to do is to accept that there's only one way back to the heart of God. And that is to accept that the life, the obedience of Jesus Christ, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ encapsulates the kind of life that God wishes to spread throughout the entire, uh, throughout His entire creation, throughout the entire universe. And that's the life you can have. Not by replicating that life necessarily, but by taking that life by faith, by accepting the offer of Jesus Christ by faith. That if you say, I want that life that Jesus Christ had, I want that obedience that Jesus Christ has. It is going to be given to you. By grace, it will be given to you through faith. And that will be sufficient for your redemption. And as you're redeemed, He takes you through the series of, you know, through the rest of your life, sanctifying you through a process of difficult pain and suffering and tribulation. So what we find in chapter 8, verse 1, is really the universe in awestruck silence as they see this uh, saga finally coming to an end. And they're surprised, despite of the fact that they probably the Lord has told them how it's going to end, but they really you know, are, are still surprised. You see, pain and suffering what we call sometimes as tribulation when the pain becomes really, really intense and it's widespread, are tools in Jesus' hands to remove all the dross from us and so purify us and transform us back into his image of love. There's an old English poet that said, Let's have that quote, let's see, uh, from, uh, <clears throat> can we have that quote up? Quote up? There it is, all right. No, uh, it's, he says, love can forbear, that is God, that's, he's referring to God as love. 
Love can forbear, and love can forgive, but love can never be reconciled to an unlovely object. He can never, therefore, be reconciled to your sin, because sin itself is incapable of being altered. But he may be reconciled to your person, because that may be restored. And the same author that quotes this author to Hearn, C.S. Lewis says, in another quote, he says, Love may cause pain to its object, but only on the supposition, supposition that that object needs alteration to become fully lovable. Friends, brothers and sisters, do not begrudge God for all the pain and suffering that you're going through. He loves you. He will see you through it. And His promise to you is that you will, He will never give you more than you can handle. And on top of that, He will save you from your own sufferings. But He means to do one thing with the pain that you're going through. He means to restore you to the original humanity that He intended all of us to be. To take all that dross off of us and to make us as lovable as Himself. You know, as I uh, conclude our, our um, the sermon for today, I, I'm led time and again, you know, you've heard me refer to this um, writer and time and again, it's, it's just the experience of uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub in, in one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think illustrates what I've been trying to say and I think what the seals are communicating to you and me that God wants us to become as loving as Himself because God would like to restore us to become like Him in every way, in our character, in our souls. You've probably heard me say this and you probably have read it yourselves in, 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 in this book that I mentioned. So the story goes like this. So uh, in chapter 5 of, of that book I just referred to, um, this character, this guy Eustace, was turned into a dragon. Inadvertently, he became a dragon, and, and he realizes that he's become a dragon. He was a, you know, he has an obstinate, you know, and, 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 a, and a, a, a very difficult person to deal with anyway. And, and so he, just as well, he, became, he was turned into a dragon. And then one day, a few days after he became a dragon, you know, um, he discovers this mythical figure, the Christ figure, Aslan, in those books. This lion, this great lion called Aslan. And Aslan says to him, come with me, and he leads him into the thick of the forest. Uh, and he leads him before a well. And then he tells, he tells him to undress. Oh, how, how does a dragon undress? And so um, Eustace starts to undress himself and claws off and, you know, peels off all of, those, all of those scales off of him. And he does it once, he does it twice, he does it three times. And then after that, he's still a dragon. And then he explains the process that um, um, Aslan takes in turning him back into a human being once again. I want to read uh, an excerpt of that to you. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. He tells this story to his cousin Edmund of the process in which he becomes a human being again. The water was as clear as anything 
and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on. And when I suddenly thought the dragons, that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins, oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it, or like, like, like it does after an illness, or as if I was banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to, ba to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I, know, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first stare he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly st uh, stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only then, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so, so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as, and, there, and there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been, he says. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, 
And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And that is exactly what God wants to do with you and me. He wants to turn us into humans again. Not the humans that we are now, but the hum to become humans as he originally meant us to be. So don't be afraid of all of these horror stuff that we find <laughs> in these chapters, and there's more besides. Worse than these, in fact. Don't, don't worry about them. Don't be afraid of them. It's just Jesus' way of awakening us to the fact that if we don't see these things as horrific, he does. And he wants to take it away. And he wants to restore you and me to where he wants us to be. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for not leaving us alone in our pains and our sufferings. And thank you for transforming us in the midst of our pains and our sufferings. As we face the days ahead, oh God, help us to, be, to continue to be faithful to you and to have that confidence in you that come what may, that you will see us through whatever, whatever it is that life may throw at us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.